Well, this morning, if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to the book of John, the book of John, John chapter 20, we come to the resurrection of our Savior and Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, in the witness of the empty tomb, the witness of Mary, as we look at this account, we come to the highlight of the text here, the book in his resurrection. John chapter 20, our reading will come from verses 1 through 18. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and the text of Scripture reads, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your precious word, for your word is eternal and endures forever. Your word is true, precious, and we give you thanks. Open the eyes of our heart, illumine our minds, and grant to us understanding that we might treasure these truths for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two weeks ago, if you had left the worship service early, 
before it ended in order to catch the opening kickoff of the game, well, you missed something. You missed the Lord turning on the lights at the end of the Via Dolorosa as it was playing. And then you were subjected to three and a half quarters of terrible play. It was awful. Disheartening, discouraging, downright miserable, all the way up until the fourth quarter. We were down 19-7 until the last four minutes of the game. So discouraging, so depressing, that some fans even let, left CenturyLink Field. Of course, they didn't let people back in, so they were abandoned outside as people were cheering away. I know people who didn't watch the end of the game. People went upstairs and thought it was all over. They had just given up. Give it in. But as it turns out, as all of you probably know, in that last four minutes of the game plus overtime, perhaps one of the greatest, greatest games in Seattle's football history had been played, according to Sports Talk Radio. It seemed as if everything that was unlikely to happen, well, it happened. A fake field goal touchdown to a second touchdown to recovering that onside kick to the two-point conversion that we would have never expected to have succeeded, went into overtime where we won the coin toss, and then a pass, game-winning pass to the touchdown. It was a thrilling game for all who saw it. It was a very thrilling game, so exciting, people just went outside just to yell out in the street at nobody after yelling at an inanimate object that has a bunch of pictures on it. Nearly hopeless, really depressing throughout much of the game till the last four minutes, to the thrill of victory, and you have never yelled like you did two weeks ago. And in the days to follow, that's everything everybody talked about. Even at Costco, when you go to Issaquah there, they have this looping thing where they play on a big screen TV when you first walk in the last four minutes and gobs of people just stand and watch in amazement. I've watched it twice myself. Over and over again. Somebody must have recorded on a DVR. You know, last time a game was recorded, I asked, did anybody have it recorded or not? You know, get it on tape? They look at me, tape? I still use a VHS. I don't know what DVR is like. But I was just listening to people, even when I went to get my blood drawn this past week. You know, there they are, where they blood, draw blood. Go Hawks! And they're talking about it. I went to breakfast with somebody at the 12th Street Cafe. Jerseys all over the place. And I'm sure when you went to your classes, you went to your coworkers at work, your neighbors, your friends, people who said, was that you yelling outside? They were just talking about the Seahawks. The talk of the city is, did you see that game? Can you believe it? We are in the Super Bowl. So you might be able to imagine the emotions that you went through as you watched in utter despair, disillusionment. You can imagine what the disciples had felt like in a small way. For their three entire years, they pinned their hopes, they pinned their dreams, they pinned their future on the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the one 
the one, the Messiah, who would overthrow Rome, who would set up an earthly kingdom, who would reestablish Israel, the one who would come to fulfill their vision of what the Messiah was going to do. They saw it all melt away. A week earlier, he had been lauded as he came into Jerusalem with palm branches, with people singing, with clothing that was thrown onto the road as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in one week, they saw their dreams nailed to a cross, beaten and stripped. Jesus, to them, had died. Didn't matter at whose hands. He was gone. There was no thought that Jesus was going to rise from the dead, not from the disciples. They had what? They had scattered. They ran away. It was a member of the Sanhedrin, you remember? A member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews and the highest position of leadership, Joseph of Arimathea, who boldly walked past his peers, I'm sure, to their chagrin, and asked Pilate, who was sore for being manipulated by the Jews, he asked Jesus for, he asked Pilate for the body of Christ. He washed the body after taking it down from the cross, as would be customary, And he, along with Nicodemus, wrapped that body, wrapped that corpse, placed spices, pounds of spices on his body, enough that would honor a king in order to mitigate the smell of a decaying corpse, which they anticipated. They prepared the body for burial, and everyone who loved Jesus, to them, that was it. That was the end. There was no hope. But today's text, as we see here, as we read this account, the text and the testimony of the empty tomb, the testimony of Mary, revive the hope that because the tomb was empty, we have a risen Savior. It was all a part of John's gospel to bring us to this point, to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that he is a risen Savior. He provides for us the hope. There are witnesses to his resurrection, witnesses of a risen Savior, the empty tomb, and of Mary. So we look at these two witnesses here in this particular text. As they come, having been discouraged and disillusioned, really all of their hopes and dreams have been shattered at this point. The witness of the empty tomb, verses 1 through 10. It is the empty tomb that is the witness, the testimony of the risen Savior. Mary Magdalene, it says here in the text, came early in the morning to the tomb. And the other Gospels, all of the Gospels have something to say about the risen Savior here. The other Gospels fill in the picture for us. They tell us that there were other women who also came tagging along, sort of perhaps after she came, but they were there. Mark 16.1 tells us that another person who was there was Salome who was also there, and Luke 24.10 tells us, now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. There were other women, in addition to the four that were named, there were a number of women. The number of women who were there in the Gospel of Mark as they had brought spices as well, to anoint the body of Jesus. They had brought spices with the full expectation that they would see a decaying corpse after two days. 
They would put spices on them to subdue the smell of a decaying body. There was no thought of a resurrected Jesus, but out of love for the Savior, they came. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but even though the disciples are often in the forefront of the Gospels, there are always this group of faithful women, of faithful women who followed the Lord Jesus, who ministered to him and demonstrated their love throughout the Gospels. There was always this group of faithful women who were there. They're mentioned to be there when he was crucified. In Matthew 27, 61, it indicates that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, opposite the grave, when he was placed there. They remained there into the night on that Friday evening on his crucifixion. And then, at this time in this text, it's Sunday morning. It is Sunday morning that they were coming to the tomb to anoint him with spices, these faithful women. They didn't know the tomb had been sealed with a Roman seal indicated that it was not to be opened. They didn't know there was a Roman guard that was posted there. In fact, Mark tells us they had been discussing along the way as they were going to the tomb that the tomb, the stone, was large. How were they going to roll it away? These faithful women came because they loved the Savior. They loved Jesus. And the Gospel of Matthew tells us that they came to the tomb. It was Sabbath, the Sunday. I mean, after the Sabbath on that Sunday, the third day of Jesus' death, recall, he, he died on Friday, then on Saturday, he was in the tomb, and then Sunday, the third day. And now it is Sunday, and it's fascinating to note Matthew's account. Matthew 28, 2 and 3 tells us this, that the women were en route to the tomb, Matthew 28, 2 and 3, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it, and his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. In all of the four Gospels, there is no evidence that the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could walk out of the tomb, as some children's materials may picture. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away so that he could get out. No, the stone was rolled away so that everyone, especially the women and the disciples, could see that Jesus was not there. It wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that the world could look in. The tomb was empty. And verse 2 tells us Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. She saw that it was open. And what did she do? She assumed that the body of Jesus was taken. So what did she do? She ran to tell Peter and John the apostle who never names himself in this gospel, and the other women were left standing there, sort of wondering, and she had run off to tell Peter and John, and they came. John records that the two of them came, they came running, and Peter wasn't quite as fast. We don't know why John records the fact that he arrived there first. It could have been because John was the younger of the two, a little bit more umph in his own um, physical abilities, but Peter, the difference was in his impetuous self. What does he do? The text tells us that Peter just went right on in, whereas John peered into the tomb. What did they see? The fact was that they saw that his linen wrappings were there, 
And they saw the face cloth rolled up in a place by itself. That should have tipped them off. That should have tipped them off in the fact that this was not a body-snatching event. This was not a case where the body was stolen. No one who wanted to steal the body would have unwrapped the body from its linens to leave it behind, nor unwrap the face cloth and neatly leave it there. I mean, he had a lot of spices already on him to clear all of that away, to leave the linen wrappings there in a nice, neat way, and then leave it all behind. The body wasn't stolen, as Mary thought. I mean, you remember the lie that was told, propagated as the soldiers who were shocked into bewilderment. Later on, they didn't go who were guarding the tomb. They didn't go to their own superiors. They would have been in huge trouble. They went to the religious leaders. The religious leaders said, well, you know, why don't you say that, you know, while you're sleeping, they came and stole the body. I mean, if you're the governor and you were being told by your soldiers, well, they were, they were, we were sleeping and the disciples came and stole the body. First question that I might ask was, how do you know that? You were sleeping. Remember, that, that is certainly not true. And the linens that were there should have tipped them off. And even if Jesus, which one theory says, well, he came and unwrapped himself, Lazarus, in John chapter 11, verse 44, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he came out of the tomb. He came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In other words, Lazarus came out. He was all wrapped up. He needed help to unwrap him, but not Jesus. Not Jesus because the linen wrappings were left behind by a risen Savior as he was raised. The witness of the empty tomb. It testifies of our Lord Jesus Christ. One thing that didn't happen, as one academic liberal named Kursop Lake had argued, was that the women went to the wrong tomb. I mean, if the women went to the wrong tomb... Even though the women were there who watched Jesus be buried in Mark 15, 47, that would mean that Peter and John ran to the wrong tomb. That would mean that the Roman guard was still at the right tomb. That would mean that the stone was still over the tomb, and all the Jews had to do was produce a body and say, look, the disciples are lying. No, they went to the right tomb. The Bible tells us in verse 8, the other disciple who had come first to the tomb then also entered, that's John, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he might rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. John saw, he believed. John saw the evidence, he believed. That was enough for him. That was enough for him. We don't know if Peter believed or not, but the Bible tells us Peter went away in Luke 24, 12, that Peter went away marveling at what he had happened. It's not very conclusive, but for John, he saw, he believed. You know, many times there are things we have taught and preached on this throughout this gospel, and John's point is throughout all of these miracles, throughout the life of Christ, that is so very astounding he presents the case for Christ. The question is simple. Do you 
believe? Do you believe the testimony that is here? Do you believe the scriptures? Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? Because some will look at it and say, that's interesting. That's fascinating. They love to learn. They think it's a good and noble thing to learn, but they don't believe. They've never trusted in Christ. The question is, do you believe? Stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let the world in that we might see and believe. Then there is the witness of Mary, the witness of the empty tomb and the witness of Mary, verse 11. She was standing outside the tomb and weeping, it says in verse 11. So she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And the Greek tense of the term for her weeping is that she was weeping. I mean, she was uncontrollably sobbing. She continually was crying, unrestrained. She is sobbing and sobbing. One might wonder why there are so many Marys. We see Mary Magdalene, Mary, whoever. It's because it was a popular name. It's a popular name that stemmed all the way back to the Old Testament. It's a form of the name of Miriam. You remember Miriam, who is the sister of Moses, who rescued and gotten Moses into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter there? Well, Mary is here. She is sobbing outside the tomb. Verse 12, she looks in, sees two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet. And here's what they ask her. They ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Now, it's not rude to address in this particular culture and that particular word that is used to address her as a woman. Why are you weeping? It's not a rude term. It's the way that they addressed someone in a cordial manner that time. The angels were dressed in white. There they were, symbols of holiness, of purity. And they asked her, why are you weeping? In other words, it's a subtle implication. A subtle implication. In other words, if she had understood and believed the words of Jesus, if she had understood all that he was saying, this was not a time for weeping. It was a time for joy. It was a time for exhilarating joy. But she didn't understand She was still thinking that the body was taken by someone. When she had said this, she turned around. She saw Jesus, who was standing there, who was standing there, did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? You know, that's indicative for those who really don't have a risen Savior, who don't know the Lord. There is sadness because there is No hope. Whom are you seeking, he says. Just as the angels had asked, why are you weeping? So too, Jesus asked, why are you weeping? It's not a time for weeping. It is a time for joy, a subtle hint once again. And then he says, whom are you seeking? Not what are you seeking. Whom, as in what person? You're not seeking a body, but a person. But supposing him to be a gardener, she says to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Her love for the Lord Jesus was such that she was willing to go, and she was not trying to accuse. She was just wanting to take his body back. Then, Jesus Every time, it's fascinating, he would call her Mary, or in the Greek, it would be Maria. 
Now in verse 16, he calls her by her old name in the Aramaic, which her relatives, her friends would have used to call her in her native tongue. And he says not Mary or Maria, he says Miriam. And Miriam, he opens her eyes to recognize the Savior and other shock that it is him. And in joy, she says, Rabboni, which is a form of a formal word used of a rabbi, honorable of supreme reverence for the Savior as she recognizes who she is. That title was given very, very suddenly, given to Gamaliel, but often used in the scriptures in reference to God. From pure despair to fullness of joy to utter disillusionment. Just hours earlier, uncontrollably sobbing in desperation, she, in shock and exhilaration, because Jesus is alive, has joy. Matthew tells us that they were fearful, these women were, but then in joy they went off. In another devotion to her Savior, she clings to his feet, clings to his feet, in other words, it's almost as if she is saying, don't let me lose you. Prompted him to say in verse 17, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say, I have ascended to my Father and your Father, my God, your God. You notice what he calls them? You see before, Jesus would call his disciples, his slaves, and then his friend. But now he calls them brethren, brethren. Jesus, who had died, had arisen from the dead, and now we are his brothers, his sisters. His Hebrews 2.11 says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he, being Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. In Romans 8.29, he has become the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus paid the price. He redeemed us from the grave, and now we are his brothers, his sisters. But you know what's more astounding? It's more astounding that just a few days earlier, the very people whom he is calling now his brethren had all abandoned him, had all left they left him. They fled in the face of persecution. They fled in the face of suffering. And they were still doubtful. They were still doubtful. Yet he calls them brother. You and I uh, would have done the same thing probably as these disciples. The Roman soldiers had come. They had crucified our hopes and dreams after three entire years. We abandoned everything, given up everything to follow Jesus. And now he's crucified. And in the mindset of them, we would have done the same thing. And yet here he comes because of his great love for his own, he calls them a familial term, not just slaves or friends, but now he calls them brethren, of whom you and I are, a part of the family of God. The extent that Christ loves us despite how undeserving we are, how utterly undeserving we would be, who rebelled against Christ, Yet he calls us brothers and sisters. The message that Mary was to bring, send to my father and your father and my God and your God, 
Don't allow someone to confuse you and ask, well, how can Jesus be God and get called Father, my God? I mean, he does that a number of times when he teaches the disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven, and he says, my God and my God, why have you forsaken me in Matthew 27, 46? One commentator writes, quote, Jesus makes a distinction here and at the same time emphasizes the closeness of fellowship between himself, his Father, and his disciples. He does not say, I am ascending to our Father. His sonship differs from theirs and ours too. Hence, he says to my Father and your Father, you see, he is son by nature. They are sons by adoption. Hence, and to my Father and your God. Nevertheless, the closeness of the fellowship is also stressed. The same God who is the Father of Jesus is also the Father of the disciples. In other words, he's the Father of both, similar to but different than ours. He is the Son of God by nature. We are sons, daughters of God by adoption. And yet, the inheritance is shared. He calls us by a familial term. He calls his disciples brethren, yet undeserving, yet even because even if they had abandoned and ran away in fear, ran away in fear. Mary Magdalene came to the disciples, verse 18, I've seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. She witnesses of his resurrection. The witness of the empty tomb, the witness of Mary, of the risen Savior, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. You realize that? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, but if there is no resurrection, he says, of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. No resurrection, there's no hope. Because of the resurrection, we have life. Do you know the first sermon that was ever preached in the book of Acts? In Acts chapter 2, deals with the resurrection as core emphasis, then it becomes a theme throughout the book of Acts, a theme that Peter preaches on not only in Acts chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 10. Stephen preached and included the resurrection in Acts chapter 7, and Philip in Acts chapter 8, and Paul brings out the resurrection in chapter 9, in chapter 13, in chapter 28. And then throughout the epistles in Romans, it says Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. In 1 Corinthians, it says he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And in 2 Corinthians, that he was raised up. He being raised up shall raise us up also. Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection is the core of the gospel because without it, we have no life, no hope, and it validates all that Jesus said and did as John has written to us here proclaiming that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. These two witnesses and the evidences that are here are found to tell us that Jesus is the Savior. Professor Thomas Arnold, who wrote a three-volume history of Rome and has chaired 
the Modern History Department at Oxford, writes, The evidence of our Lord's life and death and resurrection may be, as often has been shown to be, satisfactory. It is good, according to the common rules, for distinguishing good evidence from bad. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as a judge summing up a most important cause. I myself have done it many times, not to persuade others, but to satisfy myself. I've been used for many years of, to study. I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and examine and weigh the evidence for those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which has proved better and fuller evidence than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. You know, there is a testimony. There's a testimony of the impact of the resurrection by a man named Nard Pugyao. He lived in a village, and he writes this as a testimony. Quote, when I was about six, a tall, pale white man stumbled into my home village in Dibagat, in the northern jungles of the Philippine islands of Luzon. The man didn't speak our language, so our elders asked him the best they knew how, why are you here? I've come to learn your language, he said. I'd like to write it down and then give you God's word in your language. We started teaching this man, Dick Rowe, our language. Maybe his God could free us from the spirits. When I was about 13, Dick had to return to the United States to raise support for his ministry. Before he left, he translated the Gospel of Mark and gave me a copy. Sitting on top of a rock, I read the Gospel of Mark in my heart language. It felt like I was actually there, seeing the characters. The further I read, the more distressed I felt. A mob of people came to get Jesus out of the garden of Gethsemane. What did he do wrong? They accused him of all kinds of false things. They mocked him, spit on him, beat him, and took him before Pilate. Then came the scourge and the crown of thorns. It was excruciating to read that they forced him to carry a wooden cross and nail him to it. Deep in my heart, a hatred of God swelled. I shook my fist and shouted, I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a powerless God like you? I threw the Gospel of Mark down to the rocks and started walking home. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't protect his own son. Our headhunters defended us to the death. Because of them, no one would touch us. I wanted a God like that, someone who would protect me from the spirits that demanded we sacrifice our cows, chickens, pigs, and dogs. This God didn't even save his own son. Suddenly, 
God reached down into my heart. Nard, don't you understand? That's how much I love you. I gave my son on your behalf. For the first time, I understood grace. I understood how much God loved me. God, if you love me that much, I prayed, I want to give you my life, my heart. It's all yours. I went back and began to read further in Mark. I read that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. Nobody in all of Dibagat, nobody from among the Isnog people had ever risen from the grave. The resurrection story changed my life. That's a question for us. Has Christ changed your life? Does it really mean much to you? Story is read, reiterated time and time again. Does it mean much to you? Has it changed your life? Have you ever come to the cross? Do you know what the resurrection brings? The resurrection brings joy. Far greater, far lasting joy than any football game will ever bring to you. Joy that is lifelong. Joy that comes because there is meaning in life. Joy because we have a risen Savior. Joy because that risen Savior will, will rise and has risen and will cause us to rise again. Joy because he lives. As a song that we sing, God sent his Son. They call him Jesus. He came to love, heal, and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives. But greater still, the calm assurance, this child can face uncertain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, he holds the future. And life is worth the living. Just because he lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to the foot of the cross we serve a risen Savior because he lives. And Father, I pray for anyone here who has never come to give their life to you, to surrender themselves that they might have life, life everlasting. I pray, O oh Father, for them that you, O oh God, would save their souls, that they might have joy that is unspeakable, that you have given to them by the power of your Spirit. Cause their hearts to turn to you, and I pray, God, grant to them the gift of eternal life when they come in repentance and faith because of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.